Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We're at the Wayne County Justice Center. It's a red brick building tucked inside a sweet, quaint area of Worcester, Ohio. Across the street is the Kitchy Koo Boutique. The houses around here have worn wood paneling. The county's jailhouse is inside the Justice Center, conveniently located right next to the courthouse. It'll be just a short commute for Barb Raber and Eli Weaver, who are being held in their cells as they await trial. They'll spend the next three months in this compound before seeing the inside of any courtroom. To kill the time, Barb makes calls to friends and family from one of the jailhouse phones. She isn't too good about being alone and would usually be able to solicit the attention of Eli. Now she has to make do with ringing up her sister, Susan Miller. They talk about the status of the investigation, and Barb leans on Susan for emotional support. Early on, Susan asks Barb if the calls are being recorded. Barb lets her know that, yes, they are, but since they're speaking in Pennsylvania Dutch, the police won't know what they are saying. We have them that way, she reassures Susan. They don't know that Joe Mullet, the person listening in on the other end, is a translator whose first language is Pennsylvania Dutch. Hi, welcome back to Case Close from Macmillan Podcasts, the show where the bad guy doesn't get away with it. I'm Charlie Spicer. And I'm Christy Westgard. Last week, we followed the police as they arrested Barb and Eli and searched Barb's home. We also learned more about Barb's husband, Ed, his loyalty to his wife, despite the embarrassing circumstances of her arrest, how he's seen as a naive and gullible husband figure, and how he might not be as oblivious as he seems after hearing some of his conversations with Barb from behind bars. A lot of what you'll hear today are the conversations that were recorded by the Wayne County Police Department. We're using voice actors to reenact the calls in their English translation, but the original calls are in Pennsylvania Dutch. It's a standard procedure for all calls placed by inmates to be recorded and passed along to the prosecution. So whatever Barb says in these calls can be used against her. She's in contact with Ed the most even though everything revealed so far would make her the last person he should want to hear from. But it seems as though Eli's talent for manipulation has rubbed off on Barb. She manages to keep Ed on her side. Some of the things she says to placate him are absurd, like how she wants to do a public speaking tour when she gets out to warn people about the dangers of inappropriate text messaging. That could only go badly. She'd come across as hopeless, scared, and in need of Ed's sympathy. She asked him what he'd do without her and then told him to sell her Ford Explorer to help cover the cost of an attorney. She wouldn't need a vehicle when she got out anyway. This new Barb wanted to stay home with the kids. Sometimes she'd vent about how annoying and crude her cell block mates were. I'm going to go nuts. Why? Because they cuss unbelievably bad. Huh? They cuss so bad. Oh, yeah, just be an example and don't. You don't need to say nothing to no one. I know, 
They knew when I got up here that I was a murderer. Ed constantly told Barb, don't talk with the other inmates. He didn't want people to get any ideas about her involvement in Barbara's murder. But he couldn't control the gossip that was circulating outside of the jailhouse. And sometimes he let it get the best of him. I don't know how I want to ask this. I'm only going to ask you once. I will accept the answer, whatever you give me, okay? Uh Uh-huh. I am still with you. Did you ever do anything, you know, do anything with him? A long time ago, Eddie. Before you married me? Yeah. While Ed fought to preserve the image of the woman he'd married, he found comfort in his faith. He kept telling Barb and himself, I know the Lord will get you out if you stay by the truth. And whenever Barb felt like she was losing Ed's allegiance, she'd resort to lying about pieces of the investigation. She'd say things like the police were framing her by sticking text messages together that weren't related to Barbara's killing. They were trying to make her look guilty. And Ed rarely questioned Barb. It was pretty easy for her to get him back on her side where she could ask him for favors. She told him to say things to the lawyer that made her story more credible, like that he was at home all night with Barb. But some of the conversations were downright cryptic. If that guy comes out Monday night, mention nothing about that thing that was in the camper. I know. You know why. Yeah, I know why. And you don't have to say more. Okay. If he says something, just tell him it's the one I bought. Yeah. We're still not really clear about what this thing is that they're referring to, but it sounds a lot like they might be talking about a gun potentially used to kill Barbara. Do they have fingerprints? I have no idea. I touched it last when I put it in the case and put it in the other place. Both our prints are probably on there. They gotta have that to prove it. Okay, that's definitely a gun they're talking about. They've managed to kind of obscure the hiding location, but now Ed's looking more and more like an accomplice. After hearing this exchange over the prison phone line, Detective Chewy and Lieutenant Garrison went to speak to Ed, this time at his office. The conversation went something like this. Ed did have a camper that was registered to Barb, but Eli actually owned it. He'd given Ed permission to scrap the camper for parts, which Ed did back in 2008, long before the murder. He thought the 410-gauge shotgun had been kept in the camper, but Barb had since returned it to her friend David Weaver. As Garrison and Chewy are listening to this version of events, in the back of their mind is Ed and Barb's veiled discussion. They think Ed might not be as in the dark as he's led them to believe, so they make one thing clear to him. If they find out that he's hidden or disposed of the murder weapon, he could be charged with complicity of tampering with evidence. There's all of this risk that Ed's taking on to help Barb. If he's found to be interfering with the investigation, he could very well end up in jail. That would leave his kids without either of their parents and potentially in the foster care system. I mean, there are so many levels of greed, and it's so easy to romanticize the element of passion in this crime. But we have an innocent woman who's now dead and five kids left without parents. And now we're looking at a similar situation for Barb's kids. It's just really heartbreaking and pretty upsetting. It's the last thing you'd expect to see coming out of an Amish community. Here's Greg Olson, who co-wrote the book A Killing in Amish Country with Rebecca Morris about this case. He spent decades writing about true crime in all sorts of places. No matter what community you live in, whether it's the Amish or the English community, you've got people that are always driven 
by things that just don't make sense. And when you look at Barb and Eli, here they are, this um, say they're this illicit Amish Mennonite couple. They are going against everything that they had learned or believed or should have believed within their community. While this is an extreme case of violating Amish customs, we also do get to see some incredibly redeeming moments. This crime demanded that members of Eli's community find a way to forgive. And there's one person we need to meet while we're talking about tolerance. And that's our victim's father, David Miller. It turns out that David, after losing his daughter, had the courage to call up Ed Raber to say he was praying for him and Barb. We find out about this conversation when Ed tells Barb about it during one of their jailhouse calls. In it, Ed gives Barb a sort of play-by-play. David made the call to say he was thinking of and praying for them. He says he knows he should have called sooner. And then he tells Ed that he thinks Barb had been up at Eli's much too frequently, but he thinks that it is Eli who knows what happened to his daughter. He doesn't berate Ed. He doesn't blame Barb. His only commentary is that he thought Barb spent an awful lot of time with Eli, which is undeniable. But it's clear that he calls from a place of forgiveness. So when Barb hears about this, it's the first time that she's left speechless. When we come back from the break, we're turning our focus to Eli. Who is he talking to from his prison cell? While Eli was in jail, he placed a lot fewer calls than Barb did, and that wasn't for a lack of trying. He phoned old girlfriends and old friends, but after all that had come out, people didn't want anything to do with him. So he starts writing letters, old-fashioned pen, paper, and postage. One of the people he decides to write to is his father-in-law, David Miller. We've got a copy of that letter here. I'm going to read some excerpts that stand out. How I long to sit down and talk again with her, to look into her eyes, to hear her laugh, see her smile, feel her touch. It's more than I can bear at times. She loved me, and I loved her, but I don't think I know how much she loved me. I want you to know that I didn't know what was going to happen, and that's the truth, no matter what happens here in the courtroom or what anybody says. And I could never let my kids find their mom like they did. I know I'm a bad person, but that's something I could never do. Keep me in your prayers that I can keep a strong mind and faith and pray that I can come home, Lord willing, and be with my children, whom I love so much and are all I have left, or would you all rather I stay locked up and away? Eli also mailed a letter to his kids, and I've got that note here. This is some of what he said to them. Was wishing I could be home and go to church with you, but I can't right now. Children, I miss you so much, and how I wish I could see you and talk to you. I cry every day to see you and your mom. My heart hurts very bad for you all. Children, pray for me so I can come home again. It would make me so happy. And this is coming from a father who was willing to blow his kids up in order to get out of his marriage. His decision to then send these notes shows how tone-deaf he is to the situation. Eli's words seem to show more remorse for how his actions landed him in jail than for plotting Barbara's death and abandoning his kids. The letters really are disturbing. They talk about how much he loved Barbara, how he wanted to be with her, um, he wanted to come home, 
and be a good father to them, that he was just, you know, urging them also, I think, to speak up on his behalf that he could be rehabilitated. And he was saying things like, you know, I I just want to come home. Don't you want me to come home? Don't you wish I was in your arms instead of here in jail? So, I mean, this is another manipulation tactic, and that's really all it is. It's unclear whether the kids ever got to read these letters, but soon after receiving them, their Aunt Fanny took the notes over to the police. David Miller never responded to Eli's letter either. Strangely enough, the only person who seemed open to engaging with Eli was Ed Raber. Ed, how are you? Not too good. Eli was the one who initiated the conversation. Not too good, huh? Yeah, hey, what's the deal? I seen your wife in here the other day. Are they... can you hear me? Let's fast forward through some of the back and forth. Nothing too important. The flow of the call is, for obvious reasons, kind of clunky. Well then, what's the deal? I mean, wow, wow. But you know they got text messages. You said they got what? They do have text. Texts? That's what they're going by? Yep. Yeah, but if your wife was home and you can prove she was at home, I mean, what's the deal? I don't know. I don't know what their problem is. Eli went on to tell Ed how surprised he was that Barb was at the arraignment, as if he didn't know she'd been arrested. He seemed to be currying Ed's favor this way. All in all, the call seemed pretty aimless. So why was Eli reaching out to Ed? Eli ended up calling Ed again, and this time his intentions became clear. He asked Ed if he would loan him some money to help him with bail, set to the tune of $1 million, and to pay for an attorney. Ed, of course, refused Eli. He couldn't even afford to get a lawyer for his own wife. But his willingness to interact with Eli, to answer his questions, and follow his advice looks really bad. Maybe Ed is just another victim of Eli's manipulation. Ed's a devout man, so he might have been an easy target for someone like Eli. After all, Eli's shown he's a master at using other people's vulnerabilities against them. He's charmed countless women for his sexual pleasure, for sure, but it goes beyond even that. He's convinced his bishops to let him come back home after leaving numerous times, and now he's managed to turn Ed into an informant of sorts. Eli knows how to twist people's beliefs into a weapon he can use against them. And since we're talking about using others, I think it's a good time to introduce Miss Jamie Wood. Jamie is Barb's 25-year-old cellmate and is about to become a big part of Barbara Weaver's case. We know that Barb told Ed she was going to keep a low profile in jail. By now, though, you should also expect Barb to do just about everything that she's told Ed she hasn't done. So it's no surprise that Barb isn't keeping to herself. It turns out she has built quite a rapport with Jamie. You see, Jamie was a veteran of the prison system. She was serving time for petty theft and violation of parole. She'd previously been incarcerated in jail for corruption of a youth for a sexual encounter she'd said was consensual. And this is a sort of offense that you do not want other inmates to know about. Once you're marked as a sex offender, you're in for a pretty rough time. Suffice it to say, Jamie wanted out ASAP. Plus, she had a daughter of her own, and she wanted to get back home to her. So Jamie started getting close to Barb, making her think she could trust Jamie with her secrets. Jamie also opened up to Barb. Her body was covered in tattoos to honor the things she'd been through in her short life so far. 
She was only in her early 20s. She started to share those stories. She told Barb about the angel wings and the name tattooed on her right shoulder. It was the name of her fiancé, who died in a car crash. Jamie also wrote a few nice letters to Barb, and here's one of them. My dearest Barb, Hey, I just wanted to tell you that I appreciate everything you've done for me. I'm so glad to have met you. You're not only like a mom to me, you're like my best friend. Thank you. I hope we can hang out on the outside. I have faith that good things will come to you. Yours truly, Jamie. Jamie had written the letter just five days before she wrote to Judge Bill Rickett, the man who'd sentenced Jamie to jail. She told the judge that she had some information on the Amish case that was taking over the headlines. If she shared them with the detectives and prosecutors on the case, maybe her own sentence could be shortened? Soon after she sent the letter, Detective Chuhi reached out. He couldn't promise anything, but he would end up sending her letter along to her probation officer and to assistant DA Edna Boyle. Jamie shared the notes she'd secretly taken on Barb. She jotted down 14 pieces of information, like how Eli had given Barb the money to buy a gun for him, and how Barb had purchased a 410 gauge shotgun at a store owned by her cousin. Barb claimed Eli had asked four other people to kill Barbara, and that on the night of the murder, she didn't end up ever entering the house. Eli had left the basement door open because he'd left his wallet in her car, so she'd only gone over to throw the wallet into the basement. So instead, Eli had asked Barb to send over two men with guns to look for him, and then to kill Barbara when they couldn't find him. She had also talked about the disposal of the murder weapon, how Eli said he'd sold it, but he'd actually hidden it in a case outside, somewhere in the shrubbery surrounding the property. Barb said she was worried about how her fingerprints were all over the gun. She also told Jamie about the suicidal thoughts she was having. She talked about putting her blanket through holes in the top bunk and tossing it over the side and hanging herself. The detectives alerted jail supervisors about the suicide threat. Then they took the latest information on the murder weapon and began searching Eli's outbuildings and the Raper house for the gun case. When assistant DA Edna Boyle heard what Jamie had on Barb, she figured despite Jamie's own flaws, she was credible enough to put on the witness stand. Plus, at this point, there's pressure on the sheriff's department to make a case as quickly and as quietly as possible. The murder was starting to affect tourism. The months of jail time were wearing down Barb and Ed, too. I want to know just for my sake. I mean, why are you sitting in there? I don't know, Eddie. That is what I don't know. I mean, the Lord won't let you sit in prison for something you didn't do, okay? I did text that stuff. Why? I was not always totally all right. I mean, not like I should have. I admit that. Whatever, Eddie. I'm not going against you. Well, it sounds so. No, I'm not going against you. I like you. You're still my wife, and I want to believe you. I know I've had problems with not being truthful and stuff, but I was trying to do better, Eddie. I was trying. Like I said yesterday, I want a clean slate to start all over with my life and marriage. But if nobody wants me around, that's fine. It was the perfect time for Edna Boyle to offer up a plea deal to Barb and Eli. The first one to accept would serve less time since testimony from an accomplice makes for a stronger case. Barb was given two options, either 23 years to life or 15 years to life plus three years for using a gun. For Eli, 15 years to life. We're going to fast forward now to August 27th. So this is just a few weeks before Eli's trial was set to begin. 
Eli ends up accepting Edna Boyle's deal, and he agrees to plead guilty to complicity to commit murder. In return for a lighter sentence, he would testify against Barb Raber. In an office at the sheriff's department, Edna Boyle sat with Eli, his lawyer Andrew Hyde, Detectives Chuhi and Maxwell, and Lieutenant Garrison. They were finally going to get Eli's version of the truth on record. More disarming than his words was Eli's stoic presence. Edna described it like this. Eli was very matter-of-fact. What struck me the most was when we asked him, and that was the last time you saw your wife alive, and he said very coldly, yes, it was chilling. Hyde saw the same impenetrability from Eli. He'd later say, there was no remorse. There was some emotion, but it was all about how it was affecting him. He was focused on me, take me out of this mess. What the detectives saw so clearly in Eli, his ego and his greed, was always Barb's blind spot. When Edna Boyle had given Barb the chance to help herself by testifying against Eli, Barb remained true to her ex-lover. As Edna put it, she thought Eli wouldn't testify. She thought witnesses wouldn't show up. So Barb ended up turning down the plea deal, and the offers were taken off the table for good. She wanted a trial. But that's all for now on Case Closed. When we come back, Ed and Barb face each other in the courtroom for the first time since their arrest. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It's hosted by Charlie Spicer and Christy Westgard and produced by Christy Westgard. Scripting support was provided by Becky Celestina. Production editorial support is provided by Jasmine Festino. Thanks also to our voice actors, Matt DeMaza, Sarah Grill, Robert Allen, Katie Rabitsky, Alyssa Keene, Jasmine Festino, Leon Profiter, Emily Miller, and Morgan Ratner. You can find more information about Macmillan Podcasts at macmillanpodcast.com. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N podcasts.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.